Let us begin tonight getting to several issues that I think will be important, not at this particular juncture in your life, sometime in the future, certainly in the headlines and as we read history. But I want to start with a discussion of creation and kinds, creation and kinds. That's the word that's used over 10 times, uh, 10 times, I guess, exactly in the creation account. The Bible speaks repeatedly of kinds. Letter A, it's important that we realize as he uses that word, he uses it in reference to plants and animals kinds of things that he creates. He certainly uses a word in a category, though the taxological or categorization of human life on this planet, we've got a whole hierarchy for that, which many of us studied and had to memorize as students. Uh, We have to remember that though we don't have some detailed hierarchy of categories, we do have this one word that keeps repeating itself, and God's certainly trying to communicate in terms of very simple categories as it relates to plants and animals. But when it comes to human beings, if you want to use that same phrase, you can logically extend that though he creates all types or kinds of or categories of plants and trees and, and, and living matter that we would have in the Garden of Eden he, and creates all varieties of kinds within the animal kingdom, he only creates one kind of human being. Uh, while there's gender and, and there's, there's complementary roles in male and female, there's only one category. And, and they are the ones, and unique from all other creation, made in the image of God. Intellect, emotion, and will that reflect deity. That's critical. And as, even as I read the headlines this week, as we always return to things that relate to the environment and the people that have come out recently talking about how we're just kind of a drain on, on Mother Earth and be better if we weren't here and it doesn't matter whether we're here or not because the world's going to continue to do its thing and like we're some appendage to the planet, uh, I guess it's worth underscoring again that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. The earth and the universe was created for us to be stewards of it, to have dominion over it, of course, to be good stewards of it, but certainly as the pinnacle of what God was creating here in the material world. Many kinds of plants and animals, but only one kinds of human beings. When it comes to what we've understood since we've uh, been given the truth of Genesis chapter 1, we've understood that there's a blueprint within living matter, whether it's plant life, animal life, or human life, this thing uh, called DNA. And it provides for the variety within kinds, right? The, the blueprints for how you, if you are a plant, become a plant, the kind of plant that you are. If you're an animal, the kind of animal that you are. Or a human being, the traits that you have as a human person physically. It's the loaded packets of what we call genes of data. And that provides variety within all the kinds that he creates within the plant life and the kinds he creates within animal life and even the variation of characteristics within human life. Uh, This is standard knowledge these days, but it's important for us to see that. They can experience the effects of DNA and what it does and the information it carries, but now we have a much clearer view into this. Of course, you're familiar with this. It's a, it's a molecule that exists in the cell of the you know, 100 trillion cells in your body. They're all there, made of protein and fatty elements and water. I mean, that's the essence of this twisted ladder, this double helix that is on the screen. It's an amazing thing. If you have not studied it recently, you can take that, that protein and, and, and if you were to string that out, that tissue, if you will, of fat, water, and protein, you could string that out to about a meter in length. Now, if you think about that, that's a, a, a long string of, of data. The thing that covers it is the chromosomes, and you know the, the look of that that we're used to seeing. It's a nanometer thick 
That's one billionth of a meter. So you've got entire meter string, if you will, this double helix of information. And, and it's all packaged in the way God did it through these circular loops and the way he squeezed all of that data into a, a cell that's one billionth the size of its actual length, all in the middle of the nucleus of this cell, one DNA molecule. And of course, it's all about information. And just to think through the information that's in a DNA molecule, if you were to put that information out in in printed form, and you've heard these analogies before, but it's good for us to remember when we think about the topic that we have before us tonight, that you would be able to, to put that all out in about one, it would take one million pages of information. Now, that's a lot. I just uh, gave away my Britannica set because to another staffer here because I'll use it all electronically now. But my printed 23-volume Encyclopedia Britannica that I've had for years in my library that was just collecting dust and taking up space is about, was about 25,000 pages of information. Now, think about that. It took up a shelf and a half of my bookshelf, of one of my bookshelves, and and that's 23 volumes of information. That's only 25,000 pages. Uh, One DNA molecule is going to have in that, coded within those gene packets, a million pages of information. That's 40 times the size of my recently given away 23-volume Encyclopedia Britannica. If you were to read one bit of info in that structured linear set of data and you did it one second per packet, you would have to read for a hundred years without sleeping just to take up all of the information in, in one DNA molecule. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. And, and the hundred trillion cells in your body, think about that, the hundred trillion cells have all memorized this gigantic set, million pages of information, basically, to know what the the blueprint of who you are and and all the characteristics of what you are. I mean, every cell knows that. It it, it is reliant upon that uh, thousand-volume encyclopedia of information. And, of course, it then determines everything about everything that you are as a physical structure. I mean, whether whether it's the skin, the texture of your skin, the color of your skin, the kind of nails, the, the, the kind of hair that you have, the color of eyes that you have, the shape of your eyes, the fatty tissue around your eyes, everything about you is there encoded in that packet of information. And when you think about how procreation works and you put those packets together and we create new life in each subsequent generation, the kinds of variation of information you can have when two of these gigantic, think about it now, thousand volumes of information, a million pages of data, when you put those together, the the combinations are crazy. They estimate that in the universe, in terms of atomic material, now this is a crazy thought and it's hard to even fathom, one to the to the 80th power. So one followed by 80 zeros, how many atoms they believe there are in the universe. Think about that. If, if you took just two average people with the information they have encoded in their DNA, the varied combinations that can be made with that information is going to outnumber the atoms in the universe. Just how much information is actually there and the possible combinations of what you can produce 
and of course, not every plant, and certainly not every plant, and not every animal has the same amount of genetic information in the DNA, but you can imagine the variation that you can have, even if you split that in half, or made it a third, or even a tenth. So, depending on what we're dealing with, plants, animals, or human beings, what God has encoded at the very genetic building blocks of the universe in living matter, because of course rocks don't have DNA, and inanimate objects don't have DNA, but plants, animals, and human beings have this, the variation can be infinite. I mean, not it's finite, but it's almost infinite because it's crazy big. Now, with that said, just to kind of go back to high school biology and, and, and chemistry and all the things that we think of in terms of atomic structures and structures of our, the nucleus of our, our, our bodies at the cellular level and the data that's encoded in genes and chromosomes and the DNA of our bodies. If you think about the very DNA combinations within kinds used 10 times in the book of Genesis for plant life, you know, reproducing after its kind and animal life reproducing after all of its varied kinds. And then human beings now given this mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So they're multiplying after their kind. The variation that you're going to have in plant life, animal life, and even within the variations of human life, it's crazy. And when you start working back toward this and think in terms of category, you start to say, say this helps us understand a few things. For instance, the ark's adequacy. The ark, and by that I mean Genesis chapter 6, when God was going to flood the world and he had at, uh, Noah build an ark. And, you know, of course, that's the source of mocking for people saying, oh, that's crazy. That could never happen. And you could never put, you know, all the animals into the ark. Well, if, again, these animals are being collected after their kind, and we get back to God, who supernaturally, by the way, brings these in providential order, and not a GT1, but a GT2, picking just the right animals to come and be a part of this, two pairs of unclean animals, or two per pair of unclean animals, seven pairs of clean animals into the ark, and you've got this ark, and, and if you haven't you know, remembered the size of this, it's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, which produces almost 100,000 square feet of, of space. By the way, it took 100 years, according to the biblical text, to build this. It is an equivalent of over 500 trained boxcars. It could hold... The, the ark, as it's described, over 55,000 sheep-sized animals, which is your average size of an animal, of a grown animal. You don't need 55,000 animals. As a matter of fact, you would estimate, now this is all speculation, but if you think about the kinds that we have and just now our genetic understanding of animals and trace them back, and you don't have to have poodles and German shepherds and Great Danes and dachshunds, and, and you just have to have a, a dog wolf in there, whatever you want to call them, but you have that genetic type, you can recognize that you really only need about 2,000 to maybe 15,000 animals on the ark at all in a place that will hold 55,000. So you've got plenty of space for every major kind of animal on the ark, and you don't need aquatic life. You just need land animals, and you need those uh, with resources, obviously, and other things on the ark. You start to recognize if we're, if we're dealing with kinds of animals, we've got plenty of room in the ark, not to mention if you've ever studied the ark and its dimensions, it's just exactly the right dimensions for what is possible to build as a floating barge that would actually be physically possible to, to build out of wood. I don't have time for all of that, but it is an amazing study the more you study the ability of this big barge 
to house the kinds of animals that we need. So when you think of kinds, if you go to a museum, for instance, that tries to mock creationism, they'll say things like this. Well, creationists believe that God created everything in the world that we observe today the way they are. See, and evolutionists know that there's change among species, and so evolutionists are right and creationists are wrong, when in reality, there's not any creationist that thought this through that thinks that everything that we see on the planet is the way that God made it. Certainly, he didn't make all the varieties from, from Genesis chapter 1. Right? He didn't make all the varieties of animals, plants. He didn't even make all the varieties of different characteristics within people that we have. We, we don't have that. We have kinds Now, where that fits, whether we're talking about species or families or genus or whatever you want to talk about in terms of the taxonomy of of how we categorize human life, that's another discussion and that's up for debate and there's some philosophical creative discussion that goes on in that. But the bottom line is, when it comes to the ark's adequacy, certainly thinking through genetic combinations within kinds helps us say, well, okay, that much, that's much more understandable. Certainly, it helps us understand the varieties within animals and plant species. I talk about dogs or cats or wolves or horses or whatever it might be. The categories are what we need. The types are what we need. And then, don't be afraid of words like natural selection, because clearly natural selection helps to determine what characteristics in any kind of animal, and I mean kind in a biblical sense, any kind of animal then develops. And again, you could talk at length at least uh, the speculative theology of the kinds of changes that took place after the flood, the kind of world we had in what we call the antediluvian world before the flood and the post-diluvian world are such radically different worlds that we have. And there's lots of clues for that. And, and I didn't prepare to discuss all those things. But if you think about the, the kinds of climate change that takes place after the flood, and you have now animals coming off the ark that may have even had pretty stable reproductive traits, you now have such radical climates on the planet. Not only do we have so many kinds of animals becoming extinct right after the flood, but now you have animals that are beginning to adapt with a lot different characteristics because of natural selection, if you want to use that. In other words, the variations that then become dominant, the traits in a particular kind of animal that then adapts to cold weather or hot weather or whatever it might be, humidity or or arid climates. So you've got a lot of variations within animals and plant species after the flood. And there's so much that can be said about that. And of course, when you get into modern breeding, which the last 700 years of history in domesticating animals, it's become an art form, which doesn't create, by the way, I should make clear, any new genetic information in any of the breeding that we do. You start with information in genetic code, the thousand volume Britannica, if you will, and all you do is selectively begin to isolate those genetic packets and you have kinds of expressions of of life that look different than others, you never add any kind of useful information to that. When there's a change in information, we call that a mutation. And a mutation is never a good thing. It's, It's always a bad thing. And they try to make some exceptions to that. And though there are things that may by chance work to an advantage in a particular climate or place because of some mutation, it's always short-lived and never for the advantage of that 
insect, animal, or plant. So mutations are not good. Uh, And having had a child with a genetic mutation, if you think about human variation, which I guess we can get to next, variation within mankind, and I just throw that word up there because even that speaks to what we see in Genesis 1. We talk about mankind as a kind of creative work of God. God has one category of people, mankind, person kind, humankind. And when you have the variation within human beings, obviously, What you've got is information being selectively and compounded and characteristics then that become dominant in individuals. When there's mutations, they're bad. I say that because they think of the V-A-N-G-L-1 gene, the V-A-N-G-L-1 gene, which is the gene, by the way, that if there's a mutation in that gene, it doesn't allow the gene neural tube formation of, a, of, a, of an embryo, of a child, to actually close. It blocks the closing of the neural tube, which is your spinal column, and it creates this, this opening, this blister, if you will, where your spinal cord then protrudes out of it. This is the problem in my daughter's life. She was born with spina bifida. It's the number one neural tube defect. It's the number two defect in all of human genetic defects because uh, second to some heart defects. But that VANGL1 gene mutation then creates this spilling out of the spinal cord at some point in the closing of the, of the spine of a child, and they become paralyzed from that place down. And the lower the myelomeningocele, it's called, the lower that... That, that expansion or that, that opening, that cleft in, in the spine, the lower it is, the better it is, the less damage it causes. The higher it is, the worse it is. My daughter's is a certain place that causes paralysis from the knees down and all that branches off the sacrum of her spine, creating all kinds of bowel and bladder problems, and that's too much information for you. But what's the point? Mute, that's a mutation, and it's not good. The mutations are bad. Never is there what we have, an adding of new information within any kind of variation in human beings or in in plant or animal life. So when we think about human beings, which is where we're going in this discussion, clearly, and I just want to say this for the sake of our nomenclature or our vocabulary, clearly there's only one race, which is even a stronger word than kind. There's only one kind of, of human, one kind. They're in two complementary genders, but there's only one kind of human. And there's only one race. These are not independently, as was one time thought and believed in the evolutionary theories, that these people were growing up from different tracks. That's not the case. Certainly not the case. There's only one race uh, of, of human beings. So I don't even use the word. I mean, I hope you've rarely caught me using that word because I know there, there's not more than one race. When we talk about race, we're usually talking about skin color. And, of course, you understand that skin color is... Nothing different. Whatever your skin color is, is created by the pigmentation of your skin, which is melanin, as you know. Hopefully you know that. And the compaction of that melanin or the, the, the abundance of that melanin changes the color of your skin. And this might be interesting to know, too. We'll get to ethnocentricity later in our discussion. But white people are not the norm. The norm is, is this, if you want to give it a shade, this medium brown color is, is the overwhelming majority of the population, which is a medium amount of, uh, you know, exposed and, and surfaced melanin within skin tissue. That's normal. If you have more melanin, 
And the more melanin you have protects you from ultraviolet rays. So if, of course, you're in a very sunny place and you're exposed to a lot of ultraviolet rays, the more melanin, the better. And the adaptation of skin in those places would certainly create a pattern of predominantly darker skin. And that creates what we call black people, right? And the the lack of that, the deficiency of that, which you would prefer if you weren't in a sunny climate, because without with, that, with too much melanin, it's going to block what you need to create vitamin D. Is that what you get from sun? Vitamin D. And you can't survive without that. So you know, if you get very little sun, you need little bits of melanin. And, and that would allow the production of the vitamin D that you need. So that creates these weaker, melanin-deficient white people, if you want to call them white. No one's white. No one's black. We're all variations of brown. That's what melanin does. All of that, though, is the same information that really is about, they say, what, three to, or seven to 30 different gene packets determine how much melanin you have, and then, therefore, the tone of your skin. So part of this huge encyclopedia of information, as it's combined from mother and father, determines how much of that you have, and therefore, how your skin looks. So we could line up tonight in terms of skin color, and we're not dealing with anybody, anybody having any material difference in what, how they're created. No one is different in that. They just have different amounts of that melanin based on the 7, 10 to 30 genes that determine how much melanin production you're going to have in your skin. So unless you're middle brown, you're not normal. Most of the people in the world are, are that middle brown color. So I'm closer to middle brown than most of you. So I'm more normal than you are. Not all of you. Some of you are more normal than I am in melanin production. Everything else, really, and I know most people look at skin color as a primary distinction, but don't talk about dark skin color or light skin color as distinction in race. There's no such thing. Everyone is a humankind, of humankind. Everyone is a person. The distinctions that we then can have, depending on the predominant traits that end up being whatever they are, whether it's size or strength or eye shape or fatty tissue around the eyes that creates the almond shape of of Asian eyes, as they say, all of that is very slight differentiation between the same information. There's a lot you could read on that, but there's just a quick summary. Now let's talk about how we've gotten to where we've gotten today. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, and let's talk about the Tower of Babel just a little bit. Problem in Shinar. Genesis chapter 11, let's look at, let's just start with the first six verses here. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, again, this is a bizarre thing to put in a book that you're fabricating. I I, I don't know. I, I just often think of that. If this is all just a big hoax, this is an interesting thing to add in your Bible. But, of course, I believe it's historic. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east and found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, so you had this, you know, this this cooperation among all the people. They basically agreed to say, hey, we're going to get together, make bricks, let's burn them thoroughly. Let's advance our architectural abilities now. And they had bricks for stone and and bitumen for, for mortar. And they said, verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Now, if you read the commentaries on this, they talk about the ziggurats, which we happen to have, by the way, one here in Laguna Niguel, which is helpful to know the shape of a ziggurat, which was an interesting building, which was built for the aerospace industry. It's an interesting history on the ziggurat. Some of you probably know the history of our ziggurat better than that. But here's the ziggurat that matters right now, the ziggurat in in the plain of Shinar. 
You had them build this temple, if you will, that was tall and like a, a pyramid. And here's the problem now. They said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top up to heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, of course, we saw the mandate, not only after the flood, but from the beginning in Genesis, for people to be fruitful and multiply. And by the, the fourth chapter of the Bible, we're already having the pattern of spreading mankind around the world and cities being created and people inhabiting all kinds of places around the world. Now we have the reversal of that. You have people now wanting to make a name for themselves, which is a bit of a mysterious phrase like we have with the fall of Satan. It's a very small phrase, but it certainly speaks to a large ego and a a concern of people wanting to be uh, established in their own self-worth, and they didn't want to do what it was that God had mandated people to do, to have dominion over the whole earth, which would involve spreading over the earth, uh, multiplying, and, and spreading out. So the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built, which is a bit of a joke if you think about it. This is a big tower supposed to reach up to the heavens, and God poetically speaks of having to go down and check it out. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is, the, this is only the beginning of what they will do in rebellion against the mandate. Nothing they propose to do will be Im- impossible for them. So let's just at least state the problem, letter A, as disobedience to the ultimate mandate of mankind, which was not to make a name for yourself, but as we catch from all of the scripture, for people to glorify God, to worship God, even as we saw in Genesis 4, bringing offerings to God and concerning themselves with obeying God and being fruitful and multiplying and being stewards of the whole earth. But instead of that, now they want to worry about themselves and self promotion. That's the problem that we have going on in Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 6. God now, verse number 7 here, confuses their languages. That's the judgment. And to disperse them, that's what he wants to do. Come, let us come down now, verse 7, and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. That's what he wants to do, verse number 8. They wouldn't do it willingly, so now God creates the difficulty of them unifying and disperses them by the distinction of language, disperses them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which, you know, even in our language speaks as an onomatopoeia, right? That They babbled at one another. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now let's just mark that. The result was we scattered people and they were now necessarily congregated in teams. They couldn't get around that because God had then grouped them in languages. How many languages? I don't know. But certainly it isolated people and put them in isolated groups. This is post-flood. We have a very different kind of world. It makes sense that they would want to congregate because the further north you went, the more harsh the winters were, the further south you went, the more hot and humid and and, and difficult it was. So you had obvious reasons to come together in just the perfect place, in the place of Shinar to unify, make sure you weren't scattered and God's going to scatter you over the face of this harsh earth now. And when you do that, of course, you're going to have the kind of isolation that you need to be able to do this DNA isolation that creates predominant traits in different people. Uh, That created a vast distinction, we can safely assume, in human traits. What we know so far to add these two points together then 
is that everyone, even with different languages, do not evolve independently. That's not the teaching of the Bible. They don't evolve from different lines of subhuman classes. They all come from a set of genetic parents and then through a second uh, hourglass, if you will, Noah and his wife and Ham, Sham, and Japheth, their kids and their wives, and you have these much healthier genetic packets creating groups of people that now are scattered into corners of the planet in different places, in different climates, reproducing with a closed system for the most part, creating traits and characteristics that become dominant in different people groups. Makes perfect sense. But what we want to say is the distinctions that we see are simply, and this may be an overstatement, and I haven't read this anywhere, but I thought it was apropos, they're all cosmetic differences. No matter how much fat tissue you have around your eye sockets, no matter what you know thickness your hair is, no matter what color your hair is or the amount of, of pigmentation in your skin, all of these things are cosmetic. Uh, they say that 99.9% of your genetic material is identical, really, to any person on the planet that you could pick that looks as different from you as you could possibly choose. Think about that. One-tenth of one percent of the variation is what creates all the variations from an NBA basketball player to some Eskimo that's fishing through an ice hole tonight, you know, in, in some out-of-the-way place. The difference between those people is is such a slight, minuscule percentage, one-tenth of one percent of their genetic blueprint. So I think that's helpful for us to realize human beings are all part of mankind with simple and, and slight, when you consider the whole, cosmetic differences as individuals. And yet, we have different people groups and ethnicities, and they have been centered around language, which we still have trouble cracking the code, right? At the UN, it becomes kind of a joke to watch people listen to one person speak in one language and everybody scurry to understand it in their own languages and to hopefully have some reliable translations of what's going on at the podium. I mean, we still struggle with the distinctions of languages which have created uh, the ethnic variety. And when you think about the ethnic variety, we clearly see that God intended it and it was expected. It could have been predicted, letter A. It was something where God said, I don't want you to be in one place on the planet. I want you to spread all over the planet, take dominion of the planet, be stewards of the planet, and exist all over the planet. And post-flood, that's going to be in very different climates, which will, if you excuse the phrase, through natural selection, cause the predominant character traits of individuals to be compounded in very different-looking packages, human packages, depending on where you are. So we're going to have ethnic variety, and it was part of God's plan. It was expected, and there's no way around it, even if the people in Babel had been obedient and done it and scattered all over the varied climates of the, of the earth in Genesis 11. Not to mention, you don't need really that kind of radical picture of God spreading people to the corners of the earth in Genesis 7 to see that plant life and animal life was already seemingly in a mindless way creating vast differentiation in plant life and in animal life. Now, we wouldn't have all the breeds if it weren't for the 700 years of domestication of dogs, for instance, that we have now, but certainly you're going to have a variety of animals, no matter what kind of animal you're dealing with, what kind of animal in a biblical sense that you're dealing with. The species will have a kind of variation that you can see is all a part of God's plan. Natural revelation is what I'm trying to say here, certainly speaks to God's good pleasure being ethnic diversity. That is what he planned, and he planned it from the beginning 
And if people had been obedient, he wouldn't have had to force it with language barriers, but that's what he did. Now, I can't say this enough, but personhood doesn't vary. I mean, if we get this from the biblical perspective, we'll know there's no difference in a person's personhood or his worth as an individual created in the image of God. And of course, if you open up your Bible to places like Ephesians chapter 3, clearly the connection to God being the direct father, if you will, the paternity of God, not in a spiritual sense, but in a biological sense, we see this throughout the Bible. For this reason, I bow my knees, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Every one of them, no matter how different they are, no matter what monikers they wear, no matter what kind of of, of heading they have, no matter what they look like, all of that comes from God. And God is the direct leader of all these people, obviously in various states of rebellion. But personhood uh, does not vary. Paul said it in a different way over here in Acts 17, when he was, by the way, in a very ethnocentric climate in Greece, and the Athenians were very arrogant and ethnocentric at this point in the first century. And he says this to them, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made with hands, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Now note this, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, now this was his plan, the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. God wanted them to go all over the place, and God is the one who is the direct creator of all of these. Right? I mean, not literally, I, say, I suppose technically the, the direct creator, but through the process, their physical progeny that God creates through Adam and Eve, he is the one responsible for it. And God is always saying, personhood does not vary. Every, every nation, every mankind, every nation of mankind, that's the phrase there in verse 25, all of those made and determined by God, even the places that they ended up dwelling. Now, of course, every people group and every ethnicity is sinful. Genesis made that clear in Genesis 3 that everyone from Adam on is going to be sinful. And certainly the first three chapters of, Genesis, of Romans make that clear. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Gentile, of course, just means you're non-Jew. doesn't matter if you're of the nations. That's the Greek word, ethna, the, the, the ethnic groups of the world. Everyone's under sin. To put it in terms of Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. So everyone after Adam is sinful. And death and the effects of that sin spread through that sin, and and death spread to all men because all had sinned. And in that act of sin, in Adam and Eve, everyone then has the problem. Sin is the problem for everyone and every people group is sinful. And even when the comparisons are made between Jews and Gentiles in the first three chapters of Romans, the bottom line is they all fall short of the glory of God. That's the punchline. Now, some groups, people groups and ethnicities at times in history can certainly be worse than others. And some become notoriously sinful. That it can't be avoided. We can look at the Old Testament. We can look at how God deals with Egypt or with Babylon or Assyria or any number of the enemies that we read about that God is going to judge because their sin gets piled up to a place where he can't, his justice can't rest any longer. But in the New Testament, to use a New Testament passage, which I think may be more helpful for us than getting in that Old Testament framework in our minds of these nations that are judged by God. Look at how it's put here by Paul as he writes to Titus in chapter 1, verses 10 and 13. He says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Right? That's the, the Jewish folks that are of that religious order. 
They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, okay, you can say that. It's a subset of the Jewish folks. They're not talking about the whole nation. Keep reading. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul doesn't mince any words there. They are. They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, there's a lot in that last verse 13 that shows the fact that though they are notoriously Cretans at that point, and we even use the word as an idiom today, right? We call someone a Cretan. The Cretans were notoriously in the first century sinful people, as it says here in the text, lazy, gluttons, evil beasts, and liars. The point is that the gospel in this particular text is one that can come with the sharp rebuke of the gospel and their repentance. They can turn to God in faith and be sound in the faith, which is great. But the point is, there's no getting around that you could go to certain parts of the world and say that ethnic group or that people group right now in this particular point in time is notoriously sinful. And yet, the grace of God, I think about the Ninevites who were the epitome of sin in Jonah's day. Here was the city of the Assyrians, the capital, notoriously sinful. And and Jonah couldn't bring himself to see that God's grace could extend to these people. But of course, as verse 13 of Titus chapter 1 makes clear, God can't do what he wants with his mercy and grace, and he can shed it abroad in even some of the worst people groups throughout history. With that said, no matter what prejudice, as Paul proves that he doesn't have in that statement, because they can be rebuked and brought to faith in Christ, is always prohibited in the scripture. Letter E, prejudice. And that means that I prejudge you. Now, the Bible's not against judgment. Paul just made a judgment about the Cretans, by and large. They're always liars. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's the general moray of the Cretans living on the island of Crete. That's a judgment. It's a judgment based on knowledge and performance and behavior. So God's all into us making reasonable judgments. We do it, and when we talk as pastors, we talk about the mission fields and where we're going, what we're going to do. I mean, we have to talk in terms of climates and where things are in terms of the morality or the openness or the receptivity of certain people. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is us prejudging that based on right, my presumption of those people and not their actual performance or, or behavior. I think about some of the worst things that have happened in, uh, I mean, I'll just use American history here to think of the cult groups. And let's just take a quick um, sidebar here on, on thinking through the cults. The cults, by the way, when you're not dealing with biblical truth, you're dealing with people that are now human beings creating religious systems that come from their evil hearts, if you think about that. They are going to create in those religious systems or those perversions of Christian doctrine something that they want to express because they're not God bringing revelation. They're not apostles or prophets channeling God's revelation. They are people making this stuff up. And when they do, and they create books like Another Testament of Jesus Christ, they begin to express their own views and opinions. In this case, when you think about the Mormons in in the Book of Mormon, and I Pulled this off my shelf this afternoon. Had Ruth take a quick scan of it and throw it up here. This is Second Nephi 5. You probably haven't read it lately. This is one example of many in the Book of Mormon. Uh, but I quickly thumbed through my Book of Mormon. I, this is my second one. This is my hardback. My softback was all marked up. And it was so marked up in this page I couldn't scan it because it would look terrible. But here's my clean copy of my Book of Mormon that's on my shelf. If you look carefully here, I don't know if you can read it. I'll try to read it for you. It's tiny. You can't read it. Uh, it, it's, it's the, it's the classic passage where the Lamanites 
are, are now being responded to, which is all make-believe, by the way. There were no Lamanites and there were no Nephites. But the picture of ancient prehistoric America, apparently, where the Nephites, the good guys, the Lamanites, the bad guys, the Lamanites were compromised. The Nephites were the good guys and supposed to be protected from the Lamanites. Verse 21, pick up the, the scene here. And he had caused the cursing to come upon them. So God's cursing the Lamanites. Yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, against God, and they had become like unto a flint, right? That's the Old Testament picture, a heart of flint, hard-hearted. Wherefore, as they were white, they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, which is a frequently used phrase in Mormon theology and teaching and the Book of Mormon, fair and delightsome and white, uh, they might not entice unto my people, the Lord God, because he didn't want to entice the people of God, the Lord God then caused a skin of blackness to come upon them. So built into the Book of Mormon, here is the picture of human guys who had prejudice against, in this case, people with more melanin in their skin than they had, saying, listen, we want to build into our theology a prejudice against all black people, they call them here, who are not white and delightsome and fair-skinned, and we'll do that by saying God has cursed them. That's where we got black people from because he cursed the Lamanites, and the descendants of, of the Lamanites were all cursed by God. And if you were a Nephite, Two verses later, they shall be cursed, it says, and cursed shall be the seed of him that mixes their seed, mixes their seed, for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing, and the Lord spoke it and it was done. So you mix with black-skinned people, and then you will become black yourself, and that's the curse of God because of the sinful compromise of a hard heart against God. Now, that's just one passage. I could give you others. And by the way, when I used to go, I'd go to the hotel chains where instead of a Bible in the drawer, you got the Book of Mormon. I was always careful when I was really up on all the verses in the Book of Mormon. I would always turn to those passages and circle them and bookmark them just to show people what's in this Book of Mormon uh, and then leave it there and say, you do understand that the Book of Mormon is a prejudicial, bigoted book. And their leaders said the same. Here's Brigham Young. And of course, they've reversed this now. The revelation from God that came through Brigham Young that said blacks will never hold the priesthood in the church. They've since backed that out, but not since just recently. Here's the Mormon apostle, Bruce McConkie, who said, we know the circumstances. Now we'll get into the passage here in a second. The circumstances which, uh, under which the posterity of Cain and later Ham were cursed with what the what is called the Negroid racial characteristics. So we know this isn't just a Book of Mormon thing. This goes all the way back to the curse of Ham. And, and that curse in Genesis, which we're going to look at in a second, that's the curse that has created the black characteristics of, of individuals, which I've already told you is the natural variation of genetic variety, which God took pleasure in and God commissioned from the beginning. This has now become a theological case for the cults, in this case, the Mormon. We can go to other man-made religious systems like the Watchtower and Tract Society, which maybe you don't know this, said the same thing. They were quoted here. This is back in the day when they were producing and codifying a lot of their doctrine. The curse of, that Noah pronounced on Canaan was the origin of the black race. Now, this goes all the way back to 1929. 
page 207, July 24th edition of the Watchtower magazine, which is now, I think, called the Awake magazine, you'll find, if you look for it, you don't have to just find the Ku Klux Klan quoting things, you can find all kinds of these human religious groups trying to say that whatever happened here in Genesis chapter 9 was the origin of dark-skinned people, which at this point was clearly the predominant prejudice in white American culture. Amazing. So let's think this through now. Let's go to Genesis 9. Everyone's talking about the curse of Ham or Canaan. Let's figure this out. I'll show you why this is absolute nonsense. Genesis 9 verse 20, 20 through 27. This is after the flood, the barge had settled, things seemed to be copacetic. Noah now, man of the soil, plants a vineyard, verse 20. Genesis 9, 20. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. Do you remember this passage now? Ham, now they had three kids, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, there's much more to that than what you're reading there. Clearly, this is more than, ooh, I just got a gander of dad naked and drunk in his tent. There's something here going on that's lewd. Verse 23. And Sham and Japheth, whatever that report was and whatever pleasure he took in this and whatever perversion took place there, they weren't going to have any part of it. Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, when Noah awoke, verse 24, uh, from his wine, came through his stupor of drunkenness, which is a big mistake to start with, the Bible says, fools do that. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. See, so I know it's more than looking. Something had been done to him. So whatever molestation took place from the son to the father, it was an egregious, perverse, sexual sin of some kind. And he said, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Sham, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan's going to lose. Now what's going on? Ham did the sinning. Canaan now is going to be punished. Well, the first thing you need to understand about this is when you look at the dispersion of Ham, Sham, and Japheth, you have Ham's descendants. If you want the full picture on this, you've got Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. The the sons coming from, from, from Ham. Canaan is one of them. God picks through the providence of Noah, Canaan to curse. If you follow the descendants, and as we watch this nation building, these, these, these nations now occupy regions of the globe, you have now Cush going to northern Africa, Ethiopia, Mizram occupying Egypt, and Put occupying Libya. I'm doing it backwards for you. Libya. Canaan should be an obvious one that we figure out. Canaan becomes Canaan, dwelling in the Phoenician area in, in ancient Palestine, became the problem that many years later, Joshua had to expel them for their abominations and their sin and their perversion and their human sacrifice of their children to their gods. And so they became the worst and were subjugated by Israel. So the promise of this starts to come true many generations later. If you think about Ethiopia and Libya in northern Africa or even Egypt, but mostly Libya and Ethiopia, you'd say, okay, I can see where these children in up occupying northern Africa, and of course that became increasingly predominant in the climate of post-Diluvian world, became darker and darker, more compacted expressions of melanin in the pigmentation of people's skin, so we had darker groups coming out of that, not Canaan. Well, by the way, some people say, why does Canaan get judged for this? I don't know. Other than this, it seems to make sense 
that because one of Noah's sons becomes a real jerk and a pervert, that the punishment for Ham was that your kid is going to be a jerk. So he curses Ham's life by cursing his child to become, to go off the rails. And the descendants of the Canaanites, which by the way, are not black, if you will, they don't have dark, dark, they're the middle brown folks of Palestine, they become the Canaanites. So it doesn't even make any sense. Ham is cursed only insofar as his son becomes a pain in his neck. But those with the darkest melanin that occupy, eventually occupy Africa, they're not in Cain's lineage. Those go to Phoenicia and Palestine, and they're not the darker people. Do you follow me there? So it doesn't even work. It doesn't even make sense. Of course, it makes sense to a Mormon because the Book of Mormon tries to tie this to the curse of the Lamanites. And that, of course, was for sinful rebellion. And so I can make that the interpreter of Genesis 9. And, of course, the Watchtower and Tract Society becomes the infallible interpreter of Scripture. That's what the JWs believe. And therefore, when they talk about that, of course, they can't be wrong. So we're all going to now look at Genesis 9 as a reason to think that dark-skinned people are somehow cursed because of something that happened back in Genesis 9. It doesn't fit the context. It's certainly not what's being taught in this passage. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And all of these things in the cults, which even have we've seen around the world, I'm just using two American cults here to talk about the problem of prejudicial hatred toward different ethnic groups being built into their theology, which certainly wasn't there in the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak about their skin color or anything to do with that. What does God's word say? Repeatedly, it says stuff like this. You have no right ever to show partiality to someone because of their ethnicity. Ever. You cannot be ethnically partial. Verses all over the Bible, we start with God himself. God, he says, I'm not someone who shows partiality. I don't treat people based on their appearance or their skin color or their ethnicity. I'll get to some questions that immediately surface in your mind when I say those things, but let's keep moving forward for now. Now we turn into the book of Romans and he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So certainly at least at this point in biblical history, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be Scythian, barbarian, slave free. It doesn't matter. You now have the same access and same response of God for those who call on him. God shows no partiality. You guys show no partiality. Makes it super clear in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male, no female. For all of you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is clearly the resonating theological truth that we're left with in the New Testament. We can't get around it. You also see it in the Old Testament ethical statements like this one. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Saying, don't look on his outward appearance. Speaking now of this oldest son of Jesse who looks so great, he should be a fantastic king. Don't look at the height of his stature. Don't look at that. I've rejected him. Now look at this interesting ethical statement. The Lord sees not as man sees. You guys are always hung up on outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. That's what matters. You're looking at the cosmetic features of someone. I'm not that kind of person. God shows no partiality. Clearly, the ethic of the Old Testament is don't show that partiality. And certainly, the New Testament can't be clear in passages like James chapter 2, show no partiality. And in that case, he's talking about distinctions among themselves. He speaks of economic differences, but certainly the scattered Jewish people that he writes to, including the temptation to have ethnic prejudice, don't have it. You become judges with evil thoughts. 
If you really fulfill, he says later in the passage, the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, the context is people that are far different than you. You can't be prejudicial. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. You can't take the teaching of scripture unless you disregard it and then try to foist upon it some prejudice that you bring to the text. And then you're going to have to write extra things like the Watchtower Tract Society or another testament of Jesus to try and codify your prejudicial thoughts toward other people from other ethnic backgrounds or something because they look different. I'm going to show partiality. Treat one person one way and one person another way. God's word says no partiality. And clearly Christ's example was that. And again, that may bring up questions. I'll get to those in a second. John chapter 4, I use this as a classic example because the Samaritans were worse than the Gentiles. If you think of a first century Jew, and I could quote all the rabbis and what they taught, but clearly they thought it was one thing to be Scythian or a barbarian or a Greek or a Roman, but it was a completely terrible worse thing to be a Samaritan because that means that you as a Jew had intermarried with them going all the way back to the Assyrian invasion in the 8th century BC, you had intermarried and you'd given up your Jewish heritage and your uniqueness and you had become infused with the Gentiles. They hated the Samaritans. And yet, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she's shocked that the Jewish rabbi would even speak to her. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, John has to say speaking to his largely Gentile crowd. And then, of course, the end of the passage, which, of course, was God's intention, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, Christ, because of the woman's testimony. And remember the passage that intervenes that. He's telling his disciples, look, the harvest is white. Get out there. Go and labor for, you know, go and reap what other people have labored for. I shared the gospel. She's sharing the gospel. You now go and close the deal with these people as they all came out. Samaritans coming to a bunch of Jewish guys That was like the ultimate breaking down of prejudicial barriers. Luke chapter 9, verse 52. We'll get to this one real soon. He sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The intentionality of Jesus reaching past ethnic divisions, we see that in Christ's example. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. I know the Syrophoenician woman. I know the Jew first and the crumbs of bread. And I know passages like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, here's the part that bothers me. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we got to go back to the Old Testament to understand this. I understand that God, according to Deuteronomy, has chosen to set his love on a particular group of people who were physical descendants of Abraham. But notice how this all started with a decision for God to set his love on Abraham and make this promise. I'll make you a great nation. Take one guy, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to choose to work through you and and, and a person and your descendants. I'm going to make your name great so that it will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. So I'm going to be good to people that are good to you. And I'm going to, uh, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. So I'll be a defender in Iraq a defender for you. And in you, now here's his intention, the families of the earth will be blessed. So from the beginning, he restates it in chapter 15. He does it again in chapter 20. We are 18 and 21. We have all of these reiterations of God saying to Abraham, I'm going to pick you. I'm going to create a nation. I'm going to work in you as a nation, create a great nation through you. And my intention is to bless all the people of the earth through you. So when God sends the ultimate satisfaction for those people's sins, and he brings the ultimate blessing, the son of David, to be their king, 
right? I know it's just phase one and the advent number one, and it's not completed till the second advent, but the goodness that comes through Christ, he says, I'm fulfilling the promise to Abraham. So this message is coming first to the Jew and then to the non-Jew. The, the, the preeminence of the Jewish people was not ethnic superiority. That's made clear throughout the Old Testament. It is, though, that God is going to make a promise to Abraham and his descendants and through that nation bless people. He didn't close the doors. Even in the Old Testament, we see that. He didn't close the door to other nations. You could become a proselyte and be a part. You couldn't exclude someone from being a follower of Yahweh or being in the blessing of the covenant people just because they were born of another ethnicity. And you think through that, you think of, uh, of Ruth. You think of, of foreigners that are brought into the line, whether it's Rahab from Jericho or whether it's Ruth coming from Jordan, modern-day Jordan. You have all these foreigners interacting and becoming very important to the mainstream of the middle of God's work through the Jewish people. Jew first, I understand that. And the things we'll deal with in the Gospel of Luke when we get there is the, the priority of God's sequential work of providing the blessing of Christ to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the non-Jew. What about the intermarriage stuff? And just like the Mormons or the JWs or any other bigoted, prejudicial group of people, they're going to say, well, you should marry within your ethnic group. And a lot of times they'll say, well, that's what's going on in the Old Testament. Well, that's not what was going on in the Old Testament. For instance, Ezra, which is probably one of the most powerful passages about the problem of intermarriage, it states it very clearly in the midst of all this, doing something seemingly unprecedented at the end of that book, saying to people, you've got to put away these foreign wives. Why is that? Here he explains it. The land that you are entering to take possession of it, he's quoting now the beginning, going back to the instructions they had, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. What are you talking about? With their abominations, right? It has nothing to do with their melanin. It has nothing to do with their culture. It has to do with their sins, that they have filled it from end to end with uncleanness, their uncleanness. Nothing to do with them as people. It had to do with their moral acts. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, and neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children's children forever. That was the promise, and now he's, as Ezra confronts the people, you weren't doing it, and you disobeyed that. What? I don't get that. God's going to bring a foreign woman like Ruth into the, the family tree of Christ. Well, that, because it had nothing to do with the ethnicity of it. It had to do with the abominations and uncleanness of their acts, which in this case, Jesus was speaking of the Canaanites who came through the curse of, of Ham, was it the curse of Canaan, and it had to do with their sinful activity. And of course, that hasn't changed in the New Testament, has it? Second Corinthians chapter 6, 14 it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You could stick that verse into, into Ezra chapter 9, and you could say, it's the same thing. That verse fits perfectly there. And Ezra 9 is a quotation back of Deuteronomy saying, don't intermarry with sinful, idolatrous, abominating people who do sinful and immoral things. Nothing's changed in the New Testament. Therefore, he says, come out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves." From all those other varied ethnic people. No. From every defilement of the body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God cares nothing. And hasn't and doesn't now. 
about the marriages of the quote-unquote races, which aren't races at all. They're all just combination variations of DNA, informational packets on how people look. He doesn't pick the person that looks as different from you on planet Earth. I don't care who you marry as long as they are someone that is holy, loves God. That's all that matters. The Bible's very clear on that. Whenever someone tries to read that kind of concern or prohibition into the text, they're bringing their own prejudice to the text and certainly not the biblical teaching that we see both in Old and New Testament. Ethnocentricity. Okay, all right. I get that, I guess. Well, let's make this clear. When it comes to God's holy people, his redeemed people, the people that he has declared righteous, that he's building up in sanctification, conforming to his image, they are ethnically diverse. And the Bible says repeatedly, when he's done with it, you'll see the the cornucopia, if you will, now that we're in November, the cornucopia of people in the kingdom. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, very purposefully now, you Calvinists, right? Very purposely, he ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and every people, and every nation. I mean, the clarity of the last eschatological prophecy of the Bible, the book of Revelation, says you just need to know God's purpose is to pick people out from every, look at how it's put Every people, every tribe, every language, and every nation. Revelation 7, 9, I look and behold, he accomplished it. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. It's a very diverse group of people. Not to mention, again, natural revelation says the same thing. What does natural revelation teach us? There's complete diversity within the genetic kinds of animals and plants creating all kinds of diversity that we enjoy. The diversity of flowers, the diversity of foods, the diversity of animals, and all of that becomes something that's beautiful and useful to us as humans. And even in the biblical economy, the Bible says when God creates his people for his kingdom, they're diverse from every language group, every people group, every tribe, and every nation. They're ethnically diverse. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is Jewish. I just want to make that a point. Ethnocentricity, you do know what ethnocentricity means. I guess you should define that. My ethnic stuff is the important stuff, right? I mean, we tend to think that our religious experience with God, the Bible, and Christ, we, we put it through the filter of our own ethnicity. All, all you have to do is look at the way Jesus is, is depicted in art all around the world. I just pulled up this picture of various depictions of Christ. But then I thought, well, let's go further, man. I want to find the Jesus of America. And I found him. He was easy to find. That's him right there. And then there's the black Jesus. I've seen him. And I looked for it. They've changed the decor. But when I went, I did a paper once on diverse religious services. And one of them that I did a paper on when I was a student in Chicago, I walked in and I'd never seen a picture of a black Jesus before. And there he was, the mural behind the pulpit. And I just sat there and stared. I thought, I've never seen that before. I was the only white guy in the church that morning. And everybody, of course, they projected in their artwork the Jesus that reflects their ethnic makeup. Here's one from Eastern Bloc country. That's a Jesus, I think, of actually uh, Greek Orthodoxy. Have you seen Asian Jesuses? This is a depiction of Jesus. There's the Italian Jesus, I suppose. But again, what did I say? Jesus is what? Jewish. I don't know. I don't know if he looked like this, but I thought... We need to think more biblically about Jesus. He was not American. He's not from Libya. He's not from Canada. He's not from 
Europe. Jesus, of course, is the one we worship. And we need to realize that the God-man, Jesus Christ, took on a form that was not even in our ethnicity. And, and that, I think, helps us recognize that we shouldn't be ethnocentric about anything in our Christianity. Because this is not an American religion that we're a part of. So, what's my point? Let me be pastoral for a moment. Beware of your extra-biblical cultural preferences. You've got preferences that I know you think are very godly, but please don't pin them on God. They may be expressions of your culture, and I'm all for that, by the way. Let's not reverse this too far. Some people love to be multi-ethnic, and I kind of get sick of some of this because I think what they're saying, basically, is my ethnic expressions are no good. I'm not into that. I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're in Papua New Guinea. I don't care if you're in the outback of Australia. Wherever you are, I got no problem with your ethnic expression. I'm not really keen on your artwork necessarily as it relates to who Christ is. Let's be truthful about who he is. But when it comes to our our ethnic preferences, I want to say there's no one ethnic preference that's more valid than another. And let's just be clear about those. Let me, let's start with language. You picture Christ. I know you picture him speaking English, don't you? Right? I mean, let's just start with that. I mean, all the stuff we see in the scripture, God in Genesis 22 talking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. You picture that whole thing going down in English, like 21st century English. I, I just want you to realize none of that's the case. Christ didn't speak in English. God didn't speak to the people of the Old Testament in English. English is a Johnny-come-lately language, you understand. And when it comes to even our, our language, we need to realize it's our language. There's nothing special about that. King James only people listen carefully. I know they think, you know, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. But he wasn't reading the King James Bible. King James English, by the way. And I, let's even say that. Why does, why does 15th century English, why is that more important than 21st century English? Now, I'm not into the, you know, the, the Jesus book, uh, you know, the Hawaiian Bible. Or, you know, the, the, there's been all kinds of them out there. Now, I don't want to be crazy about this. But when I'm going to translate the Bible from the languages that God chose, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, I'd like to translate it into the receptor language, whoever I'm ministering to. I don't want to go crazy and go to the fringes, but let me hit the middle of my culture and make sure that I realize that there are limitations in any culture of of stepping over biblical lines. I'm never to be vulgar. Customs, traditions, whatever your customs and traditions are, and a lot of that expresses itself in our church services, you just got to realize those are ours, and God takes pleasure in them. But they're not the standard for the world. And American missions, or missiology as we call it, has made mistakes in the past of trying to make sure that we bring everything about our culture to the mission field. The people have to, when they become Christians, they have to have our expressed cultural, you know, traditional expressions of, of our culture. You need to be careful about that. Now, a cultural expression can't violate a biblical command. I get that. Traditions, I put that one down. Art architecture, music. There's a big one. Let me stop on that one for a second. You do understand that the music that we play, and I don't just mean music like, oh yeah, you're contemporary. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about post 17th, 16th century music. You do understand music's mathematical. I mean, and we understand there's something about an octave that we understand, right? An octave, we get the fact that what we've got is a tonal repeat at a different frequency, but it's the same sound. What you don't have as a norm is everything in between that. You could go back to 550 BC with Pythagoras. Pythagoras was not only a genius when it comes to mathematics, but he dabbled in and worked in trying to think through how music should be expressed because music music is mathematical. Pre-Pythagoras music, you think about the Psalms, for instance, 
was very different than post-Pythagoras music as the influence of Pythagoras caught on. Pre-Bach music, let's think about that, where you took the octaves and you said, let's put 12 tonal steps between octaves, and that's become the standard. That's not even the standard today. It's the standard today in Western music, and Western music seems to dominate, but that hasn't been around all that long. Our form of what sounds normal to us in terms of music is based on a certain mathematical interpretation of how we get from one octave to the next. Now, none of us can deny the octaves, but what we can't do is argue that even the tonal quality of what music sounds like is something that is going on. I know you think Handel's Messiah is playing in heaven right now based on a 12-note tonal scale. That would be an interesting thing to find because that hasn't been around that long. Even today in some music, Eastern music and Middle Eastern music, you'll find a 24-step scale. Have you heard some of that even, even today? Go on the internet and you can, you can listen to some of this. All I'm telling you is what sounds weird to you was the norm for other people in other places. I know we're arguing about volume and instruments and all of that, but just know we are bringing our, the music you like is an, an expression of your culture. And that's an ethnic thing. I get that. But don't be so ethnic, ethnocentric that you are going to die on those hills. Clothing. Now, again, there are principles. I can't be immodest in, in clothing. I get that. But clothing is certainly an expression of our culture. I think about Presbyterians that still wear robes. Nothing wrong with that, I suppose. Even our judges and stuff wear robes. But the judges that wear robes are, are clerical robes. You understand that, right? These, these were throwbacks to, to the religious leaders that would make decisions and adjudicate things. But anyway, they're expressions of a particular snapshot in, in time from a particular culture clothing. People talk about, you got to wear this, got to dress that way, whatever. And I'm willing to, to flex. If I go preach like I did in Virginia a week and a half ago, and they want me to wear a suit and tie, right? I'll wear a suit and tie. I don't like it, but I'll do it because I, I want to be sensitive to your cultural preference. But if they picture everybody in heaven walking around with suits and ties on, they're not. Food. Now, I know that hurts me just to even bring that up. Now, of course, there are principles I can't get around. I can't be a glutton, and there's things I can't do with food. But when the Bible says in First Timothy chapter 4 that there are some people that want to abstain from certain foods, but God has created all those things to be enjoyed, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, i got to know the variety of foods. Most varieties of foods I don't like. And I'm not just talking about American food. I'm, ta- I'm talking about around the world, which is probably American food too. There's a lot of American food I don't like. But that is an expression of our ethnicity. And we need to know that's not the way. Now, does God take pleasure in our particular ethnic expression? Absolutely, but it's not the center. That's all I'm trying to say. You've got to think out of the box. So beware of your extra-biblical cultural preferences. That's all they are is your cultural preferences. And God takes pleasure in those. And in, in, in the kingdom, there are going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and all that's going to be great. But let's not enforce our cultural preferences on others. And let's not, frankly, let other people impose their cultural preferences on us. And I, I don't mean that. I mean, I just want to talk about home court advantage in that case. I go to the mission field and, and I go to places where the clothing is very different and the food is too. And I lose a little weight when I go on those trips. But I can't stand back with my nose in the air saying, we got the right, we got the godly food at our church. Let's talk about slavery real quick. <laughs> in 10 minutes, let's tackle the topic of slavery. Because it often is tied to ethnic issues, I want to make this clear. I want to talk first real quickly about eth- uh, slavery as an ethnic subjugation. And, and that, when you bring up the word slavery and we think of it in our cultural context, we think of it as an ethnic subjugation. And in that regard, it's evil, is it not? Clearly, everything I've said about partiality cannot be 
ever reconciled with an ethnic subjugation. And that's gone on, not just in American history with Africans, but the South Pacific Islanders where were enslaved by the, by the Australians, the European Christians, by the Ottoman captors, Israelites, by the Egyptians. You can look at all different groups that said, you're going to be slaves and you're going to be owned by us because of your ethnicity. That's sinful and evil, and there's no way to reconcile that with what the Bible teaches. So anytime you see slavery in that context, there's nothing much to say other than it's, it's evil. But slavery is an internal, an eternal construct. It's an eternal arrangement in God's economy. And let me just give you one verse on this. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, slavery. Now that you've been set free from sin, which it just said earlier that I was a slave to sin. You've now become, look at this, slaves of God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. See, so what I need to understand about myself is the Bible says I am now freed from slavery to sin. And that's a metaphorical thing, but it's very real when I think about my slavery to God. God owns me. I could look at a lot of other passages. He owns my body. He owns my life. Everything needs to be done in light of my slavery to God. And I need to be in subjection to him. He's my master. Uh, my body's not my own. I got to glorify my master with my body. All of those things are eternal constructs. And, and so in that regard, that's not evil. Nothing evil about that. And that's not a condescension. Because the definition of slavery is to be owned by another. And so if I'm as a Christian seeing my person as owned by God, then that's an eternal construct that's built in the arrangement of, of heaven. God owns me. And that is forever going to be the reality for my life and I hope for yours. Slavery is a historical practice. Now, there's much you could say about this. And I've also said Pacific Islanders were enslaved by the Australians. And, you know, the Ottomans, of course, were enslaving all kinds of Europeans in the Ottoman conquest. And you had all these things taking place where people were ethnically subjugating people. And I'm saying that's evil. That's inherently evil. But Owning someone, at least as I think about God owning me, and I just think about that, there's nothing inherently evil about that. Matter of fact, that's good. It leads to life. It bears fruit. It's the best arrangement I could ever have. Now, what about when people own people in historical settings that's not ethnic subjugation? If you think, for instance, of first century, let's just think first century, there were two to three million slaves in Italy when Paul writes to the Romans. They say in much of the Greco-Roman world, by the time of Christ, like one out of three in some settings and urban settings, two out of three, you had people, everyone seemed to be a slave. 30 to 40% of the workforce, they said, were slaves. Two, what is that? Two out of three, right? Two out of three people in the workforce. The phrase for that, the Dominica potestis, was not a lowly title. That was a title that simply meant, I'm under the power of ownership, and it was not inherently in the minds of people belittling. And I'll show you that by just some of the people that were slaves. Bankers were slaves. Not all of them, but many of them. Publishers, entertainers, right? I mean, most entertainers. Doctors, teachers, philosophers. These people were owned by other people. Now, much like in many Old Testament settings, those arrangements were commercial arrangements and they were done willingly. They were done voluntarily. And there was an exchange of protection and provision for my services of whatever I was trained to be. I was trained to be a philosopher, trained to be a teacher, trained to be a dentist, a doctor, an entertainer. I'm going to do that for someone of means, and you will then own me, all of me, but you'll also, in exchange, the quid pro quo is, you will provide me protection and income, and I will have what I need to sustain my life. And they weren't lowly, uh, unfair arrangements. In many cases, they were lucrative arrangements with 
owners, and they wore the title Dominica Protestus as something of value. Now, what you'll find throughout the Bible, when someone is under the power of ownership, you've got passages that, that remind people in the Bible that if you happen to be in the situation of having someone, Dominica Protestus, you need to be someone who understands their personhood, their dignity. Don't lie to one another. Now think about this. If you're speaking now. I'm thinking that my equal here. You put off the old self with its practice. You put on the new self, okay? Being renewed in the knowledge of the creator. Okay, I'm thinking of all the virtues of being a Christian and growing in grace. And I'm not lying to people. And it does, the rules don't change when I'm talking about Greek and Jew. There, here there is none. Circumcision or uncircumcision. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all in all. So my virtues of one another now has to be practiced in every situation from one ethnicity to another, from one standard of eco, economic and social strata to another, and from ownership to, to being owned, it doesn't matter. My ethical expression of godliness has to be equal in whatever the context is. Therefore, I have to treat people, my neighbor as myself, whether I own them, in a quid pro quo, a win-win relationship with someone who's my slave or not. Now, in the Old Testament, we could look at this. We don't have time for it, but so much of the historical practice of slavery was with all kinds of rules. Hammurabi's code, the Babylonian law, said you had to be freed after three years. The Jewish code said you had to be freed after six years. And as you see, the guys that got their ears pierced weren't the cool guys. It was the guy that was a slave who was willing to stay with their master because they liked the quid pro quo, and they would get the all through the ear on the doorpost, and we'd become a lifelong slave. There was all kinds of rules to maintain the dignity of the person that was. Dominica Protestus, who was under the power of ownership. So we could go on about that. But mutual worth is always affirmed. Mutual advantage is usually a part of it. It's not ethnic. Sometimes it was ethnic in the conquering of an army, but that's a different kind of slavery. And if it's just for ethnic purposes, as I've said, I think we can, based on the principle of no partiality, say that ethnic subjugation is, in all cases, inherently sinful, but not slavery in every historical practice. Now, let me add this, and with this all closed. Slavery as a personal disadvantage. Clearly, to be under the ownership of someone else, as people looked at it, from a biblical New Testament perspective, they said, well, wait a minute, you're not just making it through life and just trying to survive with a good retirement plan, and as a slave, that might work for you. You're now a Christian. You now have the ambassadorship of Christ. Now you want to be able to be more nimble than you ever could before. You've got a higher calling as a slave of God that would put a lot of even lucrative quid pro quo relationships of ownership in conflict with that. You ought to realize the disadvantage of being owned by someone else. Therefore, you have New Testament passages like this, 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Hey, were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. In other words, it doesn't matter. Now, again, if you think of ethnic subjugation, and now you look at the Bible and say, oh, it's, it's, it's validating that. No, no, we're talking about the historical practice of commercial ownership, which is often, as I've said, mutually beneficial and sometimes even lucrative. And certainly, quid pro quo was for the advantage of, of all, both parties. But then he adds this, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. In other words, the advantage is always going to be, certainly as a Christian, and in any case you would say, there's advantages to being free. So he says, if you can get free, get free. But if you're not, you can't get free, you know what? Don't freak out about that. Philemon, which we just read. Didn't we read that recently? Daily Bible reading. Onesimus, of Christ, you know, the runaway slave. He writes Philemon. He was the owner. And he becomes a Christian because of his encounter with Paul. Onesimus does. And he says here, for this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while. Just thinking providentially. 
He ran away from you, came to me, got saved. Maybe that was all for this purpose, and of course it's more than a maybe, that you can have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, a doulos, a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Now, there's a lot in the scripture about you, if you have a Christian boss or a Christian owner and you're a Christian slave, this can be a great arrangement. You know, this can be good. But then keep reading here especially to me, he's a beloved brother, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Yes, later he says here, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience, and I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And the implication is there, you're going to free him. You not only have him as a brother and as a believing slave, you'll have him back as a free man, because that's even, what else could he do? That was the more. So all I'm saying is this, the Bible clearly says, and it's one of the reasons the abolition of slavery, certainly in the wake of ethnic subjugation, should should absolutely make sense. But even if you had the Greco-Roman world of millions of slaves, 40% of the workforce being slaves, you could still say, you know what, in a Christian, in a culture that has the influence of Christianity, makes perfect sense, and it's an advantage for individuals, we should get, we should do away with this. But don't look at the Bible and when you read the word slave, say, aha, immoral book, because there's much more to slavery than that.